Our, our world can't understand grace. Our world can't uh, embrace grace. Our world can't even really extend grace to others. And, and we've lived and, and been raised, many of us, in a performance-type society where you are graded by everything that you do. Uh, I was reminded of that this past week as we watched a little bit of the NFL draft, that every single thing that every single player has done has been graded, his speed, his height, his weight, his quickness, his eyes, his attention, his work ethic. Everything is graded, and they rank these players and tell you who is going to be the number one draft and who's going to be number two and number five and number ten. And everything's ranked, and there's very little grace in society today. We extend stuff that we call grace to others when we think it will come back and benefit us. But, but grace, just for the sake of grace, is seldom seen, and it's hard for us to grasp. So the writer of Hebrews keeps calling us back again and again and again to this incredible grace that Jesus offers us. He talks about the law, and he kind of compares grace to this law. And in the Old Testament, everything was driven by the law. God had given his people uh, the Ten Commandments. He had given them the laws. Man had taken the laws that God had given and, and interpreted that and made a lot more laws. And, and by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, Judaism is just a bunch of, of, of to-dos. It's a list that's a mile long, and, and you're told what you can do and what you can't do, when you should do it and when you shouldn't do it. One of the biggest uh, conflicts that Jesus always encountered was when he chose to do the Father's will on the Sabbath day. Because according to the rules of the Jews, you couldn't do anything on the Sabbath day and much less to do good for somebody. And so Jesus continually has this clash between God's grace and God's will and this, this law that man had, had taken and, and, and evolved off of what God had given them. And so he calls us back to grace and he reminds us of the difference of Jesus and, and the law. So let me, let me read for you. Uh, the first part of this passage, and we'll just kind of walk our way through it today. And, and what I want you to see, if you could grab one thing today, I want you to see that what Jesus is after is not a people who have figured out the rules, but he's after a people who have set their heart on God. They've set their heart on loving him more, loving him completely. They're going to draw, the writer Hebrews is going to draw a contrast today between what the law could not do and what Jesus did for us. So let's look at this together in, in chapter 10, verse, verses 1 and following. He says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. Now this, this shadow talk is something that we've seen several different times already, but here he brings it back up again. He says, The law is the shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of the realities. And it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So, Sometimes the writer of Hebrews makes these run-on sentences and he throws in a lot of phrases. But let's just kind of, let's back up and, and look at this whole thing. He says, here, here's what he's saying. The law is a shadow and the law can never, by doing the same sacrifices over and over and over again, the law can never make perfect those who draw near to God. There's a limit to what the law could do. And so here he's saying the law, this thing that, that the Jews were tempted to go back to, this thing that was drawing them back. Now remember we talked about the, the book of Hebrews being a book that was written to believers who had come to faith in Christ, I believe genuine faith in Christ. And, and then as they began to stumble in their walk with the Lord, they're, they're tend, tempted to run back to the law, which was familiar to them, which was comforting to them. It was, it was bondage, but it was what they were familiar with. And they were tempted to run back and began to try to do all these things 
that the old law called them to do. And so what the writer is saying right off the bat here is that this thing that you are looking to in order to declare you righteous, in order to declare you acceptable in God's sight, these things that you're trying to do yourself to make yourself uh, acceptable and righteous, those things lack the authority and the power to do what you need done. They lack the power and the authority to make you right with God. Here's what he's going to say in today's passage. This law, what it actually does is just the opposite of what you're expecting it to do. The Jews expected the law to make them righteous. They expected them to, the law to make them feel good about themselves. They, they expected the law to be able to, to fill them and to make them feel complete and acceptable and worthy before God. And what he's going to say today is the law does exactly the opposite. What the law does is remind you that you're a failure. It reminds you that you've fallen short. It reminds you that you are unholy and ungodly. It reminds you that your heart is constantly going astray. He says the, the, the purpose of the law was to show you that you needed someone to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And so when he, when he begins to compare this law, he says, listen, I want you to think, think about this way. The very thing that you're tempted to run back to can never give you what your heart longs for. Your, long, your heart longs to draw near to God, but the path that gets you there is not the law. The, the path that's going to bring you into the presence of God is not the law. It, it could never, ever do that. So verse, verse 1, the law can never make perfect, never save, never change the heart of those who want to draw near to God. Verse 2, otherwise, if it could, would they have not ceased to be offered? Would they have not stopped offering this repetitive cycle of, of sacrifices? If the sacrifice, the animal sacrifices, could make you perfect, well, there's been millions of those offered. And if they could make you perfect, don't you think they would have done so by now? It's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He said, if they could make you perfect, then, then would they have not ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So he's saying the law does just the opposite of what it promises you or what, what the people have promised you that it can do. The law can't cleanse you. It can't cleanse your conscience. It, what, what the law, this is what's really weird, is that the, the ritual of the sacrifices is a reminder but a relationship that he's about to introduce with Jesus is the remedy. The, the law reminds you of your sin. Jesus is the one that has remedied our sin. The, the law reminds us of what we've done wrong. Jesus comes to correct what was done wrong. And so he says, listen, if it could work, then it would have already worked. And, and, and because all, all these sacrifices have already been offered. And there would be no more reminder of your sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. It's a reminder that my current sins still need to be taken care of. So where he's going to go with this is here. He's going to say, I want you to see that what the law could not accomplish, Jesus did accomplish. It can never make us acceptable to God. It can never make us righteous. It can never make the way, the path for us to draw near to God. In fact, the law was the thing that required people to stay far from God. It was a law that said you can come this far and no farther. You can come into the tabernacle and you can bring an animal, but you can't go beyond the curtain and you certainly can't go into the Holy of Holies. It was the law that reminded them that you can't come near. 
but that somebody needed to make a way for us to come near. And he says here, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So here's the problem. We've all fallen short. We've all sinned. The gospel is so clear that every single person, every one of us has fallen short. And our sin stands between us and God. And we can't break through that. We can't go back and make ourselves perfect. We could, we could start anew and we could try again, but our hearts are bent towards sin. And our hearts are going to continue to go back to that. What we need is a heart transformation. And this is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to change not just our outward behavior, but Jesus came to change our heart, our desires, our attitudes. So many times in church, we put the emphasis upon the outward. These are things that we ought to do. These are things that we ought not to do. These are the things that, that we ought to participate in, and these are the things that we ought to avoid. These are the places that we should go, and these are the places that we should not go. And, and religion turns into this to-do list, which is what the law of the Old Testament had turned into. It, it, those outward things, though, can't bring you into a right relationship with God. You can do all the right things from the wrong heart and still not be right with God. I can serve you until I drop dead. But if I do it for the wrong reason, for the wrong motives, it doesn't change my heart. There, there are great philanthropists in this world that give great sums of money to, to, to change things in the world that need to be changed. But if their philanthropy flows from the wrong kind of a heart, no matter how much good they do, their heart's still rotten. It may be selfish. It may be an ego. It may be a, I want to give this money so that I can gain recognition. I want to give this money so that people will like me. I want to give this money so that it gets, it's a, a good PR move for my business or my corporation or my nonprofit. And so many times if we do the right thing but we do it from the wrong motive, we still don't see our hearts transformed. And so religion can turn into this same type of thing where we, we, we focus on the outward. And what we do is we get a lot of people that come to church and, and, and we walk lockstep. We, we don't do this and we don't do this and we don't do this. And we, we, we go to church when the doors are open and we, we, we give our money and we do these things and we don't do these things. And yet the, the church can still be filled with people whose hearts are not drawn near to God. Does that make sense? We can do the right things, but when we don't do them with the right motive or out of the right heart, then it still leaves us empty. And that's where the Old Testament saints were. They had come into a relationship with God, but they still needed their hearts transformed daily. And, and, and their way of trying to do that was to go back to the law. Let me just work a little harder. Let me just try a little, a little harder. Let me just give a little more. Let me just do these other things. Let me, let me throw in a sacrifice here and there. And that'll show God that I'm worthy and that I'm acceptable. But the writer of Hebrews says there's nothing that you and I can do to make ourselves acceptable. That's the gospel, is that we're not acceptable. And there's nothing that we can do in our own power and in our own strength to make us acceptable. All we will do is exhaust ourselves. Now, I say this because that's how I live a lot of my life. 
I've lived a lot of my life trying to do the right things and to avoid the wrong things. And I've discovered this, that does not fill your heart. There's a little bit of joy for just a short time, and then you got to do something more. There's a little bit of guilt for just a little while when you do it wrong, and then you gotta, you got to get that right. And you spend your whole life trying to, 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 to create joy and to eliminate guilt. But the reality is the only person that can do that is, is Jesus. And coming in as a relationship with Jesus is, is the thing that, that makes it all different. And so Jesus is going to say to us here in this passage, he says, look, it's impossible for all these sacrifices, the blood of the bulls and the goats, to take away your sins. And that's the problem. Man's best is never good enough. So Christ had to come. Rituals remind us of sin, but they can't remove our sin. They cover our sin, but they cannot cleanse our conscience. So look at verse 5. So consequently, as a result, Jesus came. Because we couldn't do it, Jesus did. Because we couldn't cleanse ourselves, Jesus came into the world. And look what Jesus says. Verse 5. Christ, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Wait a minute. Didn't the law require sacrifices and offerings? Absolutely. God required it, but that didn't satisfy what God desired for us. If sacrifices could, could do the trick, then, then it would have been done. But he says, Jesus, Jesus comes in, and, and one of the first things he says is that sacrifices and offerings are not what God's after. Well, if God's not after my sacrifice, and God's not after my, offer, my, my offerings, then what's God after? Any idea? That's right, Miss Nancy, our heart. That's what God's after, is my heart. And no amount of sacrifices and no amount of offerings can, can bring my heart into the presence of God. It's, it, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. The, the law is this shadow, and it's powerless to save us. It's powerful, uh, powerless to satisfy us. It just reminds us that we need someone else. And if the law could do it, then it would have been done. But he says that was not possible. It's impossible. So why did God require the law? He required the law as a measuring stick, as a mirror, to show us what we're really like. To show us how easily our hearts turn astray. And how much we needed a Savior to step into this world and to pay a price that you and I could not pay. The most freeing thing I can tell you this morning is if you're still trying to be good enough for God to love, you can stop. You can stop. If you're driven to try to make yourself good enough for God to love, please stop. Because you'll never get there. You will wear yourself out and you will still die empty. The answer is not to try harder. The answer is to come to the one who made the way for you. The one who offers you the grace to be able to just be at peace in God's presence. Look what he's going to say. Jesus says the sacrifices and the offerings are not what God's desired. But a body you have prepared for me. It would be the body that Jesus would lay down as that full and final sacrifice to pay for your sins and to pay for my sins and to pay for the sins of the world. What did God desire? 
God desired to save a sinful people. How was he going to do that? Through his son taking on flesh, dwelling amongst us, living the righteous, perfect, holy life, and then dying in our place on the cross. Had nothing to do with what we did. Had everything to do with what Jesus did. So he says, sacrifices and offerings, that's not what you desire, Lord. But what you desire is a body that you've prepared for me. A body which Christ would lay down on our behalf. You see, the sacrifices and the offerings were just a temporary reminder. But this body that Christ would lay down would be the eternal sacrifice. Once and for all, full and final sacrifice of God. Then he says it again this way. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. You mean everything these guys were doing in the Old Testament didn't bring pleasure to God? No, because those things couldn't change a heart. They couldn't turn a heart back to the Lord. So think about this. The very thing that God required in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system that God required, it could take the people so far, but it couldn't finish the job. It could make us aware that we were sinners. It could make us aware that there had to be a sacrifice that was going to be doled out for us. But it could not finish the job. It was the shadow of what was to come. So he says here, look, what happens is that, that these sacrifices that you guys are tempted to run back to, that's not what God desires. He desires your heart. The, the burnt offerings and the sin offerings that you're offering compa- uh, repetitively again and again and again, those do not bring pleasure to God. It's not just a, a box of chocolates and an apology that God is after. That's not what God wants. Jesus is the shadow caster. He is the, the light. He is the one that, 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 that reflects uh, what God desired for us. And so if I could, I want to just kind of do a little, a little illustration this morning. I'm going to get Ben to drop the lights. And um, we talk a lot in this, in this book of Hebrews about shadows. And I just want to uh, go ahead and kill all the spots and all the, the house lights there, Ben. Let me, let me cast this, this light and just pretend that this is the light. And, and you see the shadow on the back wall. And that shadow is, is, if we could, just picture this. This is where the Old Testament people are standing. And all they can see is the shadow. They don't see the reality. They don't see the cross. They don't have the light. They're, they're looking at this and they're trying to make sense. And so they look at this and they say, well, there's a sacrifice that's got to happen. And so they're busy offering these sacrifices to Jesus. And, and really all they've got to look at in the Old Testament is the shadow. It's the law. And that's how they've lived. But you and I are on this side of the cross. And what we're looking at here is, is the cross and what Christ has done. And, and our eyes shift from, the, from the, the shadow to the cross. We are on this side of the cross and we get to see what Jesus has done. They were on this, this other side of the cross and all they had to look at was just the shadow. And so what we've got going on here is this thing going back and forth. And, 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 and they've been brought to this side of the cross but their eyes keep going back to the shadow. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, keep your eyes focused on the cross, on what Jesus has done. He is the one that came and shed his blood. He's the one that came and, and I thought it was pretty cool. We can change it to a red light. How about that? And we see the cross and the blood that Jesus has shed. 
And it's in that process, guys, that, that the writer of Hebrews keeps saying, look at the cross and look at the blood that Jesus shed because that's what will save you. It's not looking at the shadow. It's not looking at the stuff that they had in the Old Testament. All right, Ben, you can bring it back up. This is, this is what the writer of Hebrews is calling us to do, is, is don't stand behind the cross and just look at the shadow. Step in front of the cross. We have that advantage that the Old Testament saints didn't. All they had to look at was the shadow. We've been given the full reality. We can look upon Christ and see in him everything that is there. And so he says in the first part of this chapter, the shadow can't save you. It just reminds you of your sin. It reminds you that there's going to have to be a sacrifice. There's going to have to be someone that sheds blood. But Jesus is the one that did it. And so look, consequently, when Christ came in the word, he says, sacrifice offerings, you not desire them. Uh, burn offerings, sin offerings, you take no pleasure. And then I said, this is Jesus speaking, I have come to do your will, O God. Here's the heart that God's after. It's a heart that says, I want to do your will. I want to do, Father, what you've created me to do. I want to be who you've made me to be. I don't want to be who the world says I am. I don't want to live by the standards that the world sets. I don't want to be this guy who dies with the most toys and still dies lost. I want my heart to be a heart that's set on you. Here's the problem. I can't get there on my own. I can't change my heart on my own. If you could, you would have done that. But we can't. And so we needed someone to come and do that. And so Jesus shows up, and Jesus paints for us the picture of the heart that God is after. Now he says, this is not what you desired. This is not what brought you pleasure. So what does? The heart that has come to do your will. So how do I get from a self-centered person that I am to a person whose heart is set on Jesus? How do I go from somebody who's living for myself and doing what I want to somebody who says, like Jesus, I have my heart set on doing your will, O Father? That's a great divide that I can't cross on my own. And the only way that that can happen is for God to transform my heart. It's a heart transplant. It's a, it's a transformation that only God can, can do. And that transformation takes place when we come to Christ and say, first of all, I can't. I cannot do this on my own. I've tried. And, and, and like we talked about on Easter Sunday, it, it's like a, a car who's out, out of alignment. That car keeps wanting to head to the ditch. And I can, I can hold that steering wheel back and I can, I can fight it and keep it between the ditches. But the minute I relax and let go, there comes that habit again. I'm right back to that addiction. I'm right back to that thing that's had a grip on me because my, my heart is out of alignment. And, and, and the minute I, I relax and let go of the wheel, I'm back over toward the ditch. You ever struggle with an addiction? You ever struggle with a sin that, that gets a, a hold of you and it just won't let go of you? That's what it is. It's, it's a heart that's, that's misaligned. And the answer is not just to try harder. The answer is to let your heart be realigned, and only God can do that. So Jesus says, look, what God's after is not these sacrifices. What God's after is a heart that's set on doing God's will. Well, how do I get there? I have to surrender that heart to God. Not once, but moment by moment by moment. 
for the rest of my life. Jesus didn't come and just do one thing perfect. Jesus came and lived a life that was perfect. Now, I'll never achieve that. But I can get up every day and say, Lord, my will today, my desire today is to do your will. My desire for this moment right now is to hear you speak. My desire right now, Lord, is to not only hear you speak, but then to obey and, and to do. And then to get up tomorrow and to do it again. And to get up the next day and to do it again. Jesus says, this is, this is why I came. Not just to, 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 to give another animal sacrifice. Not just to offer another burnt offering. Not just to give some sin offerings. That, those things didn't, never did satisfy God. But what does satisfy God is a heart that's set on him. A heart that says, I can't, God, but Jesus did. And in Jesus' name and by Jesus' power and in Jesus' blood, I want to live every day for you. Verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. And again, these were offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. So God required those things to be done, but they didn't ever bring full satisfaction. They couldn't atone for our sins. They couldn't make us right with God. But Jesus added, but I've come to do your will. I've come to offer myself as the Messiah, the one who will die in the place and pay the price for everyone's sins. And when he does that, it says he does away with the first in order to establish the second. He does away with man's efforts to keep the law. And he establishes a second, which is man's surrender to God in order to experience God's grace. It's coming to God and saying, God, I'm ready to, to let you do for me what I cannot do for myself. The difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that we realize that we can't keep that law. And we'll never be able to. And it's coming to God and saying, God, I want your grace to be applied to my heart. I want to live moment by moment in your grace. I want you to take this thing in my life that keeps grabbing a hold of me and dragging me toward the ditch. And I want you to realign my heart, Lord, so that it's set on you. So that my heart is is surrendered. My heart is focused upon you. I want you to change my heart so that then I can be pleasing in your sight. Again, not just another box of chocolates and an I'm sorry card, but a heart that's fully surrendered. In our relationships, and I know our earthly relationships always fall short in any kind of an analogy with us and God. But how would you like to be married to somebody that was constantly unfaithful, but just thought if I bring him a box of chocolates and a card and say I'm sorry, everything's going to be fine. Sooner or later, the box of chocolates... It wouldn't work. The I'm sorry card, you're going, yeah, you've said that before. What, what you want is not a box of chocolates and an I'm sorry card. What you want is somebody whose heart is set on loving you. The Old Testament was like the box of chocolates and an I'm sorry card. In the New Testament, what God's after is a heart that's transformed and set on him. A heart that's been changed and, and desires to love God, desires to live pleasing to God. It, it's not that, you're, that you're, you're working in order to be accepted. It's that you're accepted, and out of that flows this gratitude and this desire. 
just to love God back. Jesus not only showed us what it looks like, but he makes it possible through his death and through his sacrifice. He shows us our need, and then Jesus offers to meet that need. He says, here's here's where you fall short, and here's where I make up the difference. Here's where you fall short, and here's what I've done to transform your heart. Jesus does what we cannot do on our own. Because Jesus understood. Now he goes on to say here in these next couple of verses. He says that he set aside the first in order to establish the second. This, this relationship of law is set aside in order to establish a relationship of grace. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. How are we brought into this relationship? It's not by what we do. It's by grace, and it's, we're, we're, we're transformed by what Jesus did by dying on the cross in our place. And he says every priest, all these Old Testament priests, they stand daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Notice the comparison. The priest stands daily, offering repeatedly, same sacrifices over and over, which could never take away. That's the Old Testament. But look at the contrast. But Christ came, offered once, instead of repeatedly, once for all, a single sacrifice, not the same sacrifices over and over, a single sacrifice, The priest stands daily. Jesus sat down. His work is done. And he is now at the right hand of God, waiting for the time when we will join him and when all of his enemies will be subjected to him. By a single, verse 14, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So here's the message. He says, those of you that are tempted... Once you're even born again and you're, you're in the family of God, you're tempted to run back to your works, to prove your worth. You're tempted to run back to your works to, to prove the sincerity of your faith. You're tempted to run back to your works to, to make up for the bad thing that you did yesterday. He says, instead of running back to your works, run back to the cross. You come back to Christ and you say, I've I failed and I'm thankful for the cross. I'm thankful for the blood that was shed. I'm thankful for the grace that was extended, the grace that covers that foolishness that I just did. Don't run back to works. Run back to the thing that cleanses you, the thing that, that, that sanctifies you, the thing that sets you apart as God's child. He's saying that the, the thing you're running back to, those works, those sacrifices, they can't do it. They never could and they never will. Don't run back to that. This is so freeing for us as believers. Because we're so tempted when we fail to want to make up for it. To go back and to do right and to do better and to do more. But we can't. Now, there's restitution that if we harm somebody, we ought to go do. But that doesn't erase our sin. The only thing that can cover our sin is the cross of Jesus. And so when we fall short, you know what we do? 
we run back to the cross and we say, Lord, I blew it again. Man, I, I fell short again. We, we do that. Again and again, we run back to the cross. Why? Because it was that cross, that single offering that has made us right with God for all times. And he says in verse 15, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is a covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, he says, I will put my laws on their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. You know how your heart's transformed? By the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who comes to live in us. That, that I, I don't need the law running roughshod over me. I've got the Holy Spirit that when I blow it, he says, you know what? You just blew it. We've been working on uh, this place for my parents to come. And I had a day where I was just exhausted and got a couple hours sleep. And I got up the next morning and, uh, and before I could even get out the door, I had people calling. I had things that were happening and breaking loose. And it was just like, oh my gosh, this, this is just kind of overwhelming. And Janet came in, and, and I don't even remember the conversation, but she was letting me know how all these things that she had done to make my day go smoother and better and snacks and things that she had bought. And, and, and I'm just like, I can't, don't, I, I, thank you. I, and I just kind of cut her off, and, and, and I, I didn't need to pick up my Bible and go, that's not honoring to your wife. She's done something nice for you, and, and you're just going to kind of brush her off and say, look, just don't talk. Just, 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 just let my brain thaw out a minute. And that whole day, the Spirit of God just convicted me. And I had to come back to her several times, not because she required it, but because I knew that I had not spoken honorably to her. When, when God writes his laws on your heart, then the Holy Spirit immediately can convict you when you do something that's not right, not fitting. Now, that's what he's saying he's going to do here. In the Old Testament, it was all the external pressure. Don't you do this or else here's a consequence. Don't you do that or here's what's going to happen. We come into this age of grace. And it's the grace of God that applies to our heart. So that when we fail, the Holy Spirit convicts us. And as the Holy Spirit convicts us, we come back to the cross. And we find that everything we need to cover that sin has already been done. Listen, here's the difference, guys. Condemnation and conviction. Two different things. Condemnation is what Satan piles upon us when we fall short. That sin that you struggle with, that you, that you, you run back to, and, and then you failed again, and immediately Satan piles this condemnation on you and says you, you call yourself a believer, you tell people you're a Christian, and look at what you just did. You are no good. And that condemnation drives us out of the presence of God. Makes us want to run and hide the way that Adam and Eve ran and hid in the garden. It wants us to cover ourselves and cover our sin by blaming somebody else for what we've done. That's condemnation. That's not what God does. God convicts us. And here's the difference. Condemnation drives you out of the presence of God. You know what conviction does? It drives you back to the cross of Christ. The Holy Spirit convicts you. You know what confession is? Confession literally means to agree with. 
Guys, we ought to get good at confession with our wives. My dad's got a sign hanging on his back porch that said, the smartest thing a man ever said was, yes, dear. <laughs> Here's what happens. I blow it. And the Holy Spirit says, Rob, you just blew it. Confession is me saying, you know what? You're right. I blew it. I'm agreeing with God. I'm agreeing with the Holy Spirit when he convicts me that he's right, that I just blew it. And if we confess our sins, what does the Bible say? He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So condemnation drives you from the presence of God, makes you want to hide from God, makes you want to stay away from God. You don't want God walking in the room because you're scared and you've messed up. That's condemnation. And and the author of that is Satan. Conviction is the Holy Spirit saying, you've blown it. Let's get back to the cross. You've blown it. Let's go back to the cross. Let's agree with the Holy Spirit that we've blown it. And let's find that grace and that peace that is needed for that very moment. That's conviction. And the author of that is the Holy Spirit. He places his laws on our hearts. He writes them on our minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. There's the forgiveness. It's for those that the Holy Spirit dwells within. It's those that the Holy Spirit has written God's laws on our hearts. It's those who will confess that the Holy Spirit's right when he convicts us. And those who run back to the cross and find the forgiveness that Jesus offers. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. I don't have to run back to the sacrifice. Why? Because it's already been done. I don't have to beat myself up. I don't have to to try even harder. I don't have to make promises that I know I can't keep. I just run back to the cross. And I say, Lord, let's let's start over. Let me let let you transform my heart and, and, and realign it once again. So here's the good message of the book of Hebrews. Is that what the law could not do, Jesus Christ came to do. No sacrifice, no offering, no service we can offer will ever satisfy God's holiness. But it doesn't have to because Jesus already did it. Jesus changes our hearts. He starts with our heart. He works with our heart because Jesus knows this. If he can capture our heart, he's got everything else. If he captures our heart, he has everything else. Stories told of a pastor who was getting ready to baptize this very wealthy man in his church. The man was known for being one of the richest men in town. And uh, he had one of those wallets, kind of like Dalton's, that sticks out about that far in the back. It's because he got a lot of money. I mean, that's, that's, that's what I'm thinking. But he had this massive wallet. And he's getting ready, and this man's getting ready to come down to the baptismal waters. And the pastor notices the man's wallet still in his pocket. And he says, hey. I want to take out your wallet. And the man said this, when I gave my heart to Jesus, my wallet went with it. And I want it baptized. <laughs> you see, when Jesus gets our heart, he, he gets all of us. Jesus doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. He doesn't just want your time. 
he wants your heart. He doesn't just want the outside guys to be in conformity and you look like a good Christian. He actually wants you to be a Christian. So where God starts, all of his work is right here, down deep inside. And when this changes, this changes. And that's what he's after. And that's the message of Hebrews, is that he's done everything needed. What God requires of us, God supplies for us to do. So he wants your heart changed, he supplies what's needed to change your heart. Philippians 2.13, it's God that works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Because that's what God does. So maybe today what we need to do is to stop trying harder. And to say, Lord, I can't do this. But I believe you can, and I believe you will. And so right now, I just want to put it all in your hands. And I want to say, take care of my sins in the past. Take care of my sins in the future. Take care of all that. And set my heart, realign my heart to you. So that I'm walking with you. And, and, and my number one goal right now is to live this next minute for you. And then we'll take the next minute. And then we'll take the next minute. And minute by minute, we'll make it through this day living for you. And Lord, when I fail, I'm not going to run and hide, but I'm going to run back to you. And I'm going to find in you the grace that I need to get back up and to go at it again. Let's pray together.